Welcome, everybody, to the 16th episode of Chelsea Against the World, the podcast that brings together an American and an Englishman to discuss all things Chelsea Football Club. I am your host, Manny. And I am your host, Simon. And we are joined again by our good friend, John Sloop from Vanderbilt University. John, thank you so much for coming back. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me again. It's exciting. Again, John uh, wrote a book, Soccer's Neoliberal Pitch. You can find it on Amazon. The Sports Power, Profit, and Discursive Politics of Soccer. John, can you expand upon how soccer sort of gained a lot of traction here in Nashville and sort of the evolution of us getting an MLS team and, and, and sort of the beginnings of all that? Yeah, I, I would well, I would start out by saying that there are there are better people than me to explain this. I'm going to give you my explanation, but uh, uh, if people are really interested, there's a, a website I think called Nashville Soccer Archive run by Clay Trainum, which has the in, lots and lots of material and the history of it. Uh, and and so there's other people who knew something about this. When I moved to Nashville, uh, the Nashville Metros, which was a USL team, and and I can't remember how many times USL is restructured, as you know, if you followed soccer multiple times. And it at times has been the highest league that we have before MLS restarted again. But anyway, and there have been other attempts before going back and forth. Uh, the the iteration right now that we have, though, I think that the history of it's sort of interesting. Uh, uh, about I don't know. I'm I'm just guessing. Twelve, fifteen years ago, uh, the metros were had gone down to the lower division of USL, so they weren't even in the top division. MLS was was running across the nation, et cetera. And then the metros just quit, just abruptly stopped. I I think the the people who were putting money into it were just tired of going and not having any audience, et cetera. The next year, I was on Twitter uh, looking around and. Uh, I saw this tweet that had been, I think one of my friends had retweeted it from uh, Chris Jones, who's now with, uh, with Nashville Soccer Club, saying that, you know, we have to have some sort of soccer team in Nashville. This is ridiculous, et cetera. Asked people to come for an organization to see what we could do, et cetera. Uh, that led to a number of us, I, I, they, they asked for how much money we would put in as donations. And there was a sort of myth that it was Nashville. It was supporter-owned. It really wasn't. It was, it was supporter-supported. We were putting money in. We didn't get an ownership stake, really. But it, it felt good. You put money in. And we started out with an NPSL team, the, the, the lowest developmental league. Uh, I'm, I, I talk about this. People make fun of me. I'm really proud I've got member number three, that card. So <laughs> it, was really, it was really exciting. It was that early on. Um, that began to get a good gathering going. I mean, the, the, the audiences were pretty small for a while there before it was USL, but the, the, there, was a, there were people who wanted to be supporters. They have a supporter section. Uh, there was a Portland Timbers fan who had moved here and he was just trying to get them going that way. I, I will make this as brief as possible from there. Investors came in, uh, uh, they got a USL franchise. Uh, then John Ingram steps in uh, with the help of others, uh, the mayor at the time. Uh, they lobby, uh, and to everyone's surprise at the time, I, I think you were here, living here, right? It was, we were a long shot, and we went from long shot to straight to the center in no time whatsoever. That MLS franchise opened up. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm as astounded as anyone at at the response. I mean, we really are. This season, what, I think there's been three sellouts. Uh, that's 30,000 people. It's unbelievable. Um, and I'm going to say this as, uh, as, as something I, th I think we need to think about as soccer fans. 
with people selling out that soccer stadium, I still meet people, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, people I'm talking to about soccer who don't even know we have a team. It's mm. soccer is a, it's in a strange space in Nashville. Everyone knows we have a hockey team. Everyone knows we have a football team. Soccer, we think of it as very, very popular, getting larger and larger. And there are still people who just don't know that it's there. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. And that's uh, incre- the story of it is quite incredible in terms of the speed at the, that it's developed into becoming Major League Soccer. And as an English person with a, a, who've moved to America a few years ago, there's a bit of a stereotype about American sports teams in general in terms of the UK, about everything being a franchise and everything being movable and like it all being a little bit soulless. I have to say, my experience of Nashville SC is couldn't be any more different. It feels exactly what you explained it being a very grassroots originated or organization that has really captured the the imagination of the local community. And I, I go to most of the games. I'm not a season ticket holder yet, uh, unfortunately, but it feels like everyone is really, really invested when they go now. And it feels like a very special atmosphere, which it's completely counter to what any kind of preconceptions I had about it previously. And it's just a really fun thing to to visit but as you said i think i only knew about it because when i moved to tennessee i was like okay what what do i do for football here and i was like oh they've got an mls team and that was only a year and a half ago that i moved here so and i think uh, maybe you can expand upon this but did you feel like there would be any obstacles of trying to grow soccer in the south it seems like it'd be very popular on the west coast in the northeast where you have a larger melting pot of immigrants who you know sort of are into soccer or football more than traditional americans but did you feel like there would be sort of any you know obstacles of trying to growing the sport here in the south so um i mean of course i was telling my story in the last episode of growing up in the south and not i mean just not even just despising soccer quite frankly but so i thought there might be some of that on the other hand we did have atlanta as an example already where it had just exploded uh, before they were playing Benz when they were playing at Georgia Tech Stadium. I went down and watched, and it was the most amazing MLS experience I'd had. Not only the supporter section, but the I mean, I'm entirely of the entire stadium was up for all 90 minutes. It was unbelievable, uh, a better experience than I had anywhere. So I thought, well, that's possible, but people would tell me, well, that's Atlanta, and they're way more diverse than Nashville, et cetera. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't know the statistics on that or the actual numbers, right? But but uh, some concern. But it seemed to me we were we were showing, we were seeing that there was interest, there was growth. I I was I was concerned there was a lot at stake. Uh, the fight for the stadium. Uh, you lived through that. There was a there was a lot of concern about building that stadium, what it would mean, et cetera. So I think yeah, I was a little bit worried, but. Uh, but immediately, uh, the first game sold out. There's been so much enthusiasm. And I think the games at Nissan uh, showed us that we were going to be there. But, yeah, I was a little bit worried about it. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, go- going through your book, um, you talked a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement and how it sort of evolved from American sports, football, NBA, and sort of also kind of evolved into soccer as well, both abroad in here in, in this past season we've seen a lot of reflection of racism in football uh, towards players of African descent especially in France and in Italy um, thoughts about that so I mean that's a that's a that's a huge topic to say do you have thoughts about right <laughs> yeah yeah I do but I, I mean uh, I'd like to uh, 
talk about a couple of things and get your responses. Simon, I'd be really interested in your take on this. Um, one of the things that I really con I get concerned about, uh, well, let me just break this up into two different ways. I'm not going to rehearse the chapter in here, but it is fascinating that Black Lives Matter, a, a phrase that begins and is its origins are situated in a U.S. context, right? Became a phrase used on jerseys and Fair League and elsewhere, right? So there's something fascinating about that. Uh, the chapter is going to outline you know, what happens to this and how does it get talked about. And my interest in a critic is always, where are the progressive possibilities and how do they get shut down, right? And so that chapter is going to do some of that work. Say, this was a real big movement. How do things get shut down? But I really don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about something else for a second. That is what we think of as racism in football. And, and I have a concern. And I, want, I really do want to hear Simon talk about this. When we see examples, we see examples from Europe that are, uh, to some Americans, jaw-dropping, right? But here's the problem. So we have examples of, I mean, Italians making monkey noises, throwing bananas. I mean, players, I mean, we don't need to go through all these, but really overt stuff, right? Um, and we can find it appalling and we can point at it and criticize it. We can write articles about it, et cetera. That's what I do. But what I get concerned about is... It's not as if, and we all know this, it's not as if racism has disappeared in the United States. And somehow we're able to look at this more overt stuff and point at it as this is, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, and not reflect on ourselves. And I, I get concerned about that. I think that's an excellent point. And actually what I was going to say about my experience in England and what actually seeing it from afar in the last couple of years, because I think going back to real kind of sea change in, in culture in terms of what happened with with George Floyd's murder, there was a lot of um, a lot of the movement that happened in the U.S. in terms of protesting moved over to the to the U.K. and in particular the U.K. because that was what I was experiencing. That was the year of the Euro 2020 tournament, which was delayed into Euro 2021, where there was all this outrage about the England players taking the knee at the start of the games. And there was this whole argument about it and that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson got involved and Home Secretary Priti Patel, who's honestly one of the worst human beings, <laughs> honestly one of the worst human beings in the world. And it it really it changed the discussion because like there's a real naivety in England and I think ignorance about it in terms of having the discussion, which I think was reflected in what you were saying as well about overt and covert. Like... On the face of it, you don't see those things happening at English stadiums as much as they used to in the 80s and probably the 90s as well. But the the, the racial disparity in terms of the, the institutions about f English football and the attitudes around it are just as fragrant and racist as they ever have been, I think. Mm -hmm. But just because our fans are not as egregious in terms of the the abuse that they give the players in the stadium. It, it, to me, I think there's this English attitude that we're not as bad as them because we right. don't do right. that. We just, we keep it behind closed doors. We don't say it out loud, which is just, it's just as bad. It's just as bad. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's an institutionalized attitude about it and a real ignorance and naivety. And I think that, that's my experience of it, seeing it from afar. And yeah, I, I feel that there's the, the examples that we saw in Europe, in Spain, with Vinicius in particular recently. I feel that as English fans, we can't judge 
too harshly on other countries until we sort our own house out. So um, you might, so I, I, I'm not doing this as a way of saying this, you should read all this book, but I, one of the chapters that you might find interesting, Simon, that was a lot of fun for me to write is about hooligan memoirs. And so it's, it's a chapter where I analyze a, a, a large number of those books that came out around the early 2000s. And you might know this from, from growing up there, this almost a cottage industry of heads of firms and mm. reflecting back on what happened and how everything has changed. And the reason I'm bringing that up here is that one of the things that, that happens is they, of course, have to, they have to talk about racism. They have to talk about the racist past or the connections with National Front or all yeah. these types of things. And what happens in every one of these books, I mean, this is just, this, they, they feel like one person wrote all of them, no matter what firm you're talking about, yeah. right? Every time they say, oh, the racism was never as bad as you thought. In fact, uh, it was all just, you know, and we didn't believe it anyway. It was just sort of a thing that we did. If you think we were racist, and I mean, there's, a, I think it's a, the, one of the books by one of the Chelsea Headhunters. He said, if you think we were racist, you should ask Black Charlie about that. Just for, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's that sort of odd thing, yeah, yeah. right? It's just, it's sort of cringy. Yeah. But on the other hand, the, 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 the attempt to erase it by saying it was never very serious before, again, moves things which overt and then sort of acts as if it's not there at all. And I think it's much better for us to reflect on of course, I, I'm really happy that there's not that much overt stuff happening, yeah, right? Yeah. On the other hand, we need to continually think about the ways in which uh, those actions of the past act as ghosts or memories on, on us in the present. Yeah, yeah. And the point you made as well, it's so important. Just because you don't see it and hear it as much doesn't mean it's not there. And it is there. It's just people are just buried their heads in the sands a little bit about it and... It blows my mind, actually. I've seen... I'm not sure what the context is about these... I've seen this Twitter handle, and I think it's a supporters group called the American Hooligans or whatever. And you know this better than anyone. In terms of your research, hooliganism is not something to be celebrated at all. And, like, glamorized. And, like, films like The Football Factory and Green Street Elite with where they had Frogo Baggins play the, the chief West Ham yeah, hooligan, right, right. Elijah Woods. It's just, like you are missing an awful lot of that story out that it stems from a lot of racist movements within the UK in particular. And that's where that exists now. I don't know, Manny, if you have any thoughts. No, I think that um, a lot of countries, specifically in Europe, are not immune to racism, right? If you remember the Euro final when Rashford and Sancho and uh, Saka missed yep. those penalties, yep. how much vile racial abuse do they get online? So it's hard to say that racism is less apparent in England than it is in France and Italy. I do think in the U.S. it's not as prevalent in soccer because I think soccer in the U.S. attracts a different it does. crowd. It's, it's, I wouldn't use the word progressive, but they're more open-minded. More of the fans in the U.S. are sort of open-minded when it comes to soccer because I think it attracts that mentality. Whereas you see a lot more racism in college football or NFL or NBA, especially with the Black Lives Matter and the kneeling during the national anthem. Oh, the NFL. Was, the I NFL remember the resistance with, with that. With Colin right? Kaepernick when he started the kneeling yeah, yeah. of the national anthem. I think you see a lot of that in that setting. Whereas in MLS, it's, I think it's a little bit better, different. Again, not immune to a lot of racism. It may be more towards like Hispanics or something like that. But it's not as prevalent as it is in Europe. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a, it's a good point. I think that, um, um, and and again, some of this would have to be tested and looked at, et cetera, to to, to make the claims. But uh, I would assume that you would see because I I see claims, especially like U.S. Mexico games, where there is hostility towards the Mexican team, which sometimes, at least to my ear, goes beyond two nations at battle yeah. with one another. Right? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting, actually. Like. For, speaking from an English perspective, where I, I grew up going to Stamford Bridge, where I, I, the first game that I went to, I think I was nine or ten years old, I think it was, and you just get you get immune, you get immune to hearing just the the vitriol that comes out in the, in the stadium, and it's and, and it's not a Chelsea exclusive thing; it's an English football thing. I experienced it when I went to watch England games at Wembley. I've been to other teams. For some reason, I went to a few Arsenal games where they played at Highbury. I played it. I went not just as away fans, but like you would split tickets with people and go to lots of different things. And you just that part of my brain just like switched off all the noise until I started going to American sports events. Actually, in particular, I first went to uh, an American sports event about say 15 years ago. I went to Fenway Park to see a Red Sox game, and like people just weren't swearing. They weren't swearing for a start, which was like, it blew my mind in particular because like, that is like a feature of going to sports games me. And like, I have to say, like, as an English person going to Nashville to at uh, Geodis Park and the fact that they, they're quite self-policing in terms of the, it's in the standing in the supporter sections where all the, all the vocal support is generally, they are very self-policing, which... I took the piss out of a little bit because it's what I'm used to. It back home, I was like, "Oh, you're not allowed to swear." This like, what are you controlling kind of speech, or whatever. Like, just joking around, and then taking out of it mm-hmm. the fact that they are self-policing and making everybody feel welcome, and sh- like people's comfort level is different. So why would you err on the side of being really aggressive and like accept everything that's being said? I think that's a good thing that they put self-police like that, and they want you want kids to grow up learning the right message from football or soccer, whatever you're going to call it, and not be surrounded by the kind of things that maybe that I heard in England. I think that's how you grow a proper culture and change the culture of the sport. So um, I wanted to, Simon, you and I have talked before in different contexts, and I'm, I'm wanting to get your thoughts on, both of your thoughts on this. Um, the w- Spurs are one of the teams Chelsea sets itself up as their rival. It's always weird to me because clearly Spurs and Arsenal see themselves as the main rivals. But the discourse around any fan group in America, at least in America, is going to be so anti-Spurs, right? Fine. You you pick your rivals and you do that. I've always had a bit of a cringe with it, however, because historically some of this is based in anti-semitism right this yeah. is spurs association with jewish fan groups etc they embrace that themselves etc and during the hooligan era clearly a lot of anti-semitism there do you think it's worth our reflecting on i, I mean I, I that does not mean that now when somebody says i hate spurs they're being anti-semitic necessarily but i actually think it's worth at least reflecting on the roots of what we see as a rivalry that they don't see it's actually a very good point because we actually talked about this on one of the podcasts. I think from an American perspective, my hatred with Spurs was based on rivalry on the pitch uh, from my, my watching the Spurs and Chelsea, right? And it had to do with Pochettino, his team, and especially the Battle of the Bridge. Like, I was so, so, like, I want to get on the bridge and just, like, smack a Spurs player <laughs> just because how, how much, how fucking dirty they were during that game. Yeah. There should have been three or four red cards. And I think 
my hatred for Spurs sort of went through that game and then a couple years beforehand mm-hmm. and, and afterwards. And, of course, we're beating the hell out of them on the pitch. But, you know, after, after the mid to late 2000s, you didn't really see Arsenal challenge much right. in the top four. It was more Spurs, Chelsea, Man U, maybe Man City, maybe Liverpool. But Arsenal was sort of, you know, the bottom fifth or sixth team during Winger's last couple of years. So I think if you talk to American fans in general, I think their hatred toward the Spurs is more what's on the pitch. Whereas if I talk to Simon or somebody in his family or anybody in England, they can't stand Arsenal. That's yeah. like that's like their biggest rival because it's more traditional for them, right? Yeah, it's interesting actually because my hatred is Arsenal, always has been. My hatred is Arsenal. <laughs> and And that actually comes from a competitive place. Generally it does. I think that when I grew up, Wenger was in charge. Henri was the best player in the world. They would beat us repeatedly. And like, there's something about their supporters that rubs me the wrong way. Like I feel that they know how to get to me and get under my skin. I think they all say the exact right thing to annoy me all the time. Um, And just when I went to university in West London, all my friends were Arsenal supporters and it was nearer Chelsea than anything else. And even when we win in the league, they used to like proclaim some kind of moral victory. But going back to Spurs, I think the origins of the the hatred that a lot of Chelsea fans in the UK, and it's not just Chelsea fans, I think there's other, West Ham in particular hate Tottenham more than everyone else, really they do. And I think there's a very uncomfortable conversation about anti-Semitism that hasn't really happened in terms of the roots of that hatred. And I think London is a very, very complex city to analyse. It's a very, you know, as about as diverse as it gets. But there's some problematic history that I've read a little bit in terms of novels about after the post-Second World War about Jewish refugees who were settling in London and how that they're concentrated in certain areas because that's where refugees were put at that time and communities have kind of stemmed from there in terms of northeast london where tottenham is based and i feel that there is an un- unrecognized un- unrecognized is the right word unconfirmed anti-semitic bias that exists with tottenham with a lot of london clubs and i find it absolutely appalling and in terms of you know associations in my personal life where actually when I stopped going to football for a while because I would hear it on the terraces and it used to make me feel very very uncomfortable and yeah I just I feel that that conversation isn't really had enough so let me ask you a question uh Dr. Sloop um <laughs> uh, you notice a lot of teams now to sort of fight racism in the stands or have this sort of new system where they pause the game, and if it continues, they sort of stop the game, and then they say, we're not going to continue. Do you think that's the, that's, that's the appropriate approach to sort of combat racism currently? So it's going to be interesting to see if if those ever have, those sorts of policies have uh, have teeth that, that work. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a whole different issue, but it's like financial fair play. I, I was happy when that comes to play in Premier League, but I don't, I've never seen any results of it that seem to have real teeth. It's a different topic, but I think it, it matters. So, so let's take um, uh, let's take the U- recent U.S. Mexico game, right? So the Mexican fans were continuing to chant their offensive chant at the goalkeeper. The referee stops the game. 
threatens to end the game if it keeps going and ends the game. But when does he end the game? When we're behind by, they're behind by three to nothing. He just really cuts off five minutes of extra time. It doesn't matter. There's going to be, have to be consequences to fans doing this that are real consequences. Like if this happens once and a loud enough thing, the game's over and you lose. That sooner or later, fans will catch on and they can't do that. But if you give me the goal, if I want to, if I want to shout something racist or I want to do that and you say, you can't do it. We'll stop the game, but you, but really, you can do it if you're behind by three and you don't mind losing at that yeah. point. And then there's no there's no real consequence. That's a really good point, and this is something that's bothered me about some of the discourse in terms of dealing players. The onus being on the players to have to act when they're being racially abused. Like I saw this argument so much in the British press in particular about putting pressure on the players. If they get racially abused, walk off. No, it shouldn't be up to the people who are getting abused to make that kind of decision. This is where the authorities come in. They need to actually put some policies in, say that if your fans are racially abusing the other team, you, you forfeit the game. You forfeit the game. You make it like real world, real world consequences to the actions of their supporters, and then they would fix it. There'll be drive to fix it, and like I think in some of these fans would self police. Yeah, exactly. If you forfeited games, or if you said fans can't come to games, you don't forfeit. Fans would start self policing because if you put my enjoyment at risk, I'm going to stop you from doing it. Yeah, and what's more important to football uh, football clubs than winning and losing, right? Yeah. So. I do think that there has to be a top-down policy. Just remember in La Liga what happened to Vinicius. You know, the head of La Liga said, oh, that wasn't real racism. Or, you know, just made some sort of excuse for those fans that were vile, vile towards Vinicius, you know? And so it's hard to have that respect of self-police when you're not getting the backing of the top people in the league. Right, you're not going to see that in France or in Italy or in Spain. I think you will in England. Uh, recently, um, there was a friendly between New Zealand and Qatar, I think, and a Qatari player had racially abused a player on New, uh, New Zealand who was, I think, of Maori descent. And the New Zealand player said, "We're not coming out. We're done." Right, and they shut the game off. I think it's going to have to come to that if you're not going to get the backing from the refs or from the people higher up. Yeah, I think it's a really. Uh, I just thought of a really interesting analogy about it. It's it's almost like, well, it's exactly like if you go into your workplace and one of the other employees starts harassing you or abusing you or racially abusing you, it wouldn't be on you to fix it, right? You would make the complaint and it would be on the authorities, it would be on the organisation to fix that issue. So why is it any different in football? Why is the onus being put on the employees of that that organization to fix a problem outside of their remit. And in fact, the workplace one's interesting because if, even if you didn't report it, if your boss saw that yeah, yeah. and didn't do something, they would be at fault, right? Yeah, they, yeah. It's, it is the burden of others to stop this behavior, right? Yeah. And that's the way it should be, right? Yeah. And that's the thing. The players are they're doing their jobs, aren't they? they right. should, you wouldn't expect to go to your workplace and get racially abused. So we shouldn't expect it as a manageable situation for these players as well. Shifting topics, I want to kind of go back to your book under your chapter, Working Class Heroes, Oligarchs and Sheiks. Rob Bennett, or Roger Bennett, one of the guys from Men and Blazers, had a quote about Chelsea fans. He goes on and says that American Chelsea fans are out of touch in terms of understanding what true English soccer supporters are like. The choice of Chelsea as a team makes sense to Bennett because they are with money and success. 
living the American dream. It's fascinating to turn to take the wealth of a British team and a Russian owner and refer to it as part of the American dream. <laughs> yeah, what do you want me to respond to? Yeah, I, I, I thought that was sort of thick, right? Like, yeah. you, you know, we, we support Chelsea because it's the American dream. <clears throat> right. No, I mean, and so that chapter is really about how we, uh, how we're constantly translating values into American terms, right? So we try to make the unfamiliar familiar. So we turn these things around. So uh, it would be interesting, uh, Simon, I, I don't want to keep putting burden back on you in this <laughs> okay. conversation, okay. but it would be interesting to see like, uh, what does an English man of Chelsea see when they come to America about our, the way we value. But in those examples, yes, that's what, that's what we often do, right? We take the values, our own values, and translate it back into. In that chapter, I was uh, looking at when, when NBC first started broadcasting all the Premier League games. And it was, it was crazy. I would talk to my English friends, and I was like, I'm right now watching five different games. You might have done this the first season. I was putting on screens just to do it. And they were like, yeah, really good, because they were you know, paying a lot of money to watch any of yeah, them yeah. there. But guides came out which premier league teams should you choose and these guides were all about what do you like as an american and what are your values and how can i translate these teams into your values so uh so i'm trying to look there about how our choice of not just our choice of teams but how those choices are based upon values that get reified in the process but what did you notice about the way we think of Chelsea by we I mean just American fans and and your understanding of Chelsea the first thing I was very surprised how knowledgeable everyone is really genuinely because I, I like if you put the shoe on the other foot I think there's a minority of English NFL is the biggest biggest export in terms of sport I think there's a very small minority of fans who really get into it in terms of can have a, a real detailed discussion about it but I, every single Chelsea US fan that I've met who go, goes to the games has a level of knowledge that I was just amazed by and like can have a very challenge me on a lot of good conversations in terms of just my experience of watching football. I've, I've got a, a ridiculous memory of everything that's ever happened with Chelsea, but that's it really. Um, and it's interesting, like I feel that the culture has really matched the fan base as well. Like there's one common thing that I think the English and American Chelsea fan base have, which is winning and nothing else counts. Nothing else counts. It doesn't fucking matter how we do it. And I think that's an Abramovich thing that came in and like culture that with Drogba and Terry and Lampard is that we're not necessarily going to win in the most beautiful way, but we're going to win everything and it's going to be great. And everyone hates us. <laughs> Fuck you. Like, that's literally how I felt about it. Like, would you say that's accurate? I think that's very accurate in terms of the Chelsea fans that I've, I've sort of experienced. You know, we have very high expectations. And this season was daunting for us. You know, it was a complete sort of whiplash of emotions because we're not used to losing. And, you know, we're entering a new ownership. That in itself was an emotional transition, right? Because this year was probably the most reflective of Roman going through three different managers. You know, it was. <laughs> yeah. But it, ne it never showed up on the pitch. This would be probably, this was the worst season that I've known Chelsea. And Roman would not have allowed any of this to happen, I don't think. You know, I, but it, it's just one of those situations. I think that we do have a high threshold as Chelsea fans, especially in America, that, you know, we want to see cups, we want to see trophies lifted, and we want to see wins. But I do, I, I want to underline what what simon said it's not just i mean i really do like the fact that we don't just want to see wins 
we don't care how we get them. I mean, we, we don't want to cheat. It's all about winning. I know, That's but when, you, when, when, I would, I, when, we were, when we were winning a lot with Mourinho and people would tell me, like other fans, like, oh, I can't stand the way he just sparks the bus and stuff. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Do we win? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually interesting. I got, someone texted me the day after Chelsea beat Barcelona in the Champions League semi-final. And then we played at Stamford Bridge and beat them 1-0 when Drogba scored and then we beat them in the new Camp afterwards. And he messaged me, did you see the stats? And I re- replied, yes, 1-0. Yes, right, 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 like, right, right. Who That's cares it. about yeah, anything same, else? Same with the CL final, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 In yeah. 2012, we were like getting possession, Bayern Munich, shots on goal, Bayern Munich, penalty misses, Bayern Munich, you know? <laughs> you know, and there's something actually more fun about winning that way because like, I think Mourinho really infected our culture as supporters oh. as well it's like when they start hating you we dig in further we we double down on our strategy we win this game if we get four players sent off if we injure a load of their players it doesn't matter we win because you think it's about like and interesting when i moved over to the u.s i started out on the east coast and i really got into baseball and like massive massive new york yankees fan a massive New York Yankees fan because there was something very, very similar about the by everything else. <laughs> but like in terms of like their fan base, I know they haven't won the World Series for a long time now, but their fan base is like they is long winning. time is a relative term yeah. though. Let's yeah, go. Yeah. Go ahead. But winning matters. Everything yeah. else doesn't matter. And like yeah. I think that's a very Chelsea attitude to have. Like this season has just been awful awful but would we exchange this season for all the winning that we've had in the last 20 years absolutely those moments have been the best uh and 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 in fact i we have to have seasons like this one we just had i know we're going veering a little bit off topic but i do think this was a uh what what i'm trying to be philosophical somewhat but it was clarifying i mean it it really cleans the system let's get back down to business and start winning again right immediately so we'll see i just i want to i want to say you might like this i was in the swimming pool the other day and this woman it was you know about my age says to me she says hey uh, your tattoo and I said what well, I have a Chelsea tattoo she says is that a New York Yankees tattoo <laughs> <laughs> it might as well be <laughs> I should have said that yes. sleep shoes look at your lower back right that's where a tattoo is <laughs> right above the crack line oh, it's right I, on my heart kind of Crisis. shifting topics yeah I want to ask you now kind of expanding upon the Sheiks and the oligarchs <laughs> chapter. There's an evolution now in English football where you're seeing a lot of influx of money mm-hmm. from these oil countries. Obviously, with Man City, now with uh, Newcastle, and potentially with Man United. Simon, this is probably for you. How, how is that shifting in terms of like the people in England and, and, and just Premier League in general that there's so much outside money coming in? That's changing the whole dynamics of English soccer, or Simon, English football. Yeah. So, but Simon, when you when you approach this, I, I want you to approach it not just from like Saudi money and sports washing, but like the the history of American owners and what was what was that like? What's it been like to see the sport change from British owned small club, you know, that that community based to these global enterprises? That's quite a deep question. Um, honestly, I think if it's happening to your team, you love it and people don't care. If you look at the way Newcastle 
So I think Newcastle is a fantastic example of this because they absolutely hated their previous owner as an English guy called Mike Ashley who runs this chain of like sports merchandise stores called Sports Direct and he's he's just not a great person. However, they've been desperate to get rid of him for about a decade and this, they heard of the Saudi interest about a year and a half ago. And the way that Newcastle fans have just decided to ignore every problematic element to their Saudi ownership in exchange for good results, it really, I think it's a real highlight of how the attitude is when it's your club. I remember when Abramovich bought us originally, everyone was a little bit unknown about it because it was like, Chelsea were good, we weren't great, but we had some good players like Lampard and Terry were already playing for us. And there was a lot of unknown about it until we started flashing the cash and everyone else was like really, really envious of Chelsea. And then with City coming in, I think everyone is just numb to it. I feel that the transfer window to me highlights the the disconnect in terms of English fan base in terms of as compared to the real thing that's going on. Like I find the transfer window the worst period ever. I can't stand it. I think it just people talk as if millions uh, is nothing, is pennies, and like they don't re- believe it's the real like a real economy. And they talk about it. Well, we should be offering five million more, then we'll get it over the line. I'm just like you've got no concept of reality here. And I feel that that is the disconnect about it now that it's transformed and it's been in the game for a long time now. And I feel that everyone hates it if it's not their team. If it is your team, you love it and just ignore it. And I don't think the wider implications, in particular, the Man U example about the, the proposed Qatari ownership, I think is a real... If that goes to Qatar, I think the whole game is screwed, really. I think the whole European game is screwed because Manchester United are arguably the biggest club in the world and their fans are just so desperate for these glaciers to go that they just ignore. They just take the money. It doesn't matter what where the money comes from, we want this money so we can make us better again. And that absence of winning the Premier Leagues, which they were experiencing under Ferguson for so long, has just poisoned their view of it, I think. And I think people just don't care. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And it, it's, it, it just seems like it's going to be more and more in that way. And, and when in the past you could look years ago and say, oh, there's Abramovich. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's Abramovich, there's City, and now New yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just when every, and there's more and more teams doing this, it's going to be more and more of a shrug. Yeah. Right? And it's really, I think it's absolutely hilarious that the fact that Chelsea have sold the players to Saudi Arabia, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, <laughs> who are the two big pundits in England, have absolutely kicked off saying that there's conflict of interest with Clear Lake Capital and investment with Chelsea and Newcastle and the Saudi regime. And it's just, just because it's Chelsea, yeah, they've right, thrown right, their right, toys right, out right, of the right, front. Right. I, I do find it very ironic for Gary Neville to sit there and do that when he was standing on the graves of so many slaves in Qatar, you know, that built those monster stadiums. It's and just took pure money From there to, 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 you know, to announce a lot of the games in the World Cup. And he's sitting here now, you know, talking about Chelsea and their ties to Saudi Arabia when his own club at some point would maybe be owned by Qatar. It's it's quite rich of him to, to sort of Gary say Gary Neville is a strange, confused little man. Yeah. The best thing he ever did was have his live orgasm during Torres' goal. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the best Gary Neville that we've ever experienced, you know? Literally peak Gary Neville in every way possible. <laughs> 
Well, that kind of brings us to the end of this episode of Chelsea Against World. I want to thank, again, John Sloop for joining us in this uh, last two episodes. Great topics of conversation, both abroad and local, Nashville soccer soccer city, as well as uh, Europe and uh, the Middle East. Again, uh, his book is available on Amazon. It's Soccer's Neoliberal Pitch, The Sports Power, Profit, and Discursive Politics. We're going to put a link on our Instagram and our Twitter when this episode comes out. We can purchase it. But again, please, we love all of the listeners for Chelsea Against the World. You can follow us on all of our social media, Twitter and Instagram. That's CATW Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, I just want to echo our appreciation for John for coming on for the last two episodes. It's been really fun conversations. And yeah, if you've got any questions for us, if you want to follow up with John with any questions, please send us an email. Um, And if you're listening on whatever podcast platform, please give us a five-star rating so we can get to as many people as possible. But thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Keep the faith and we'll be back with some more guests uh, later in the summer. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you next time.